When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan was driven back. The mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs. What ailed thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest? Thou Jordan, that thou wast driven back. Ye mountains that ye skipped like rams and ye little hills like lambs. Tremble, thou earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, which turned the rock into a standing water, the flint into a fountain of waters. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a mighty word from a mighty God we have before us. And your servant who has come, especially in weakness today, in weakness of body, and perhaps even of mind, uh, prays that it would be the same mighty God that causes the seas to flee, the mountains to tremble, that would work by the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the word. That the very voice of God that causes the calves to birth, uh, that causes the universe to come into being, Uh, that same voice of God would be in the preaching of the word. Not that the people of God would see a man, but that they would see past the man to the man, Jesus, who's ministering to us now from the heavens. And so we pray that the people of God would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that not one here would be without the Spirit's help, that if they are unconverted, that this would be a word that would cause them to tremble before God and then flee to the Savior. And if they are converted, that they would tremble uh, for the goodness of God towards his people. Oh, Lord, only you can do such mighty things. And so we pray now that unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, the grace would be given that I should preach among your congregation the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in our time, you have likely heard uh, an expression like this that the power of Mother Nature must be respected. The power of Mother Nature must be respected. You often hear it whenever there is an overwhelming flood or a storm, perhaps. Um, For secular man, even with all of his modern attainments, all of his modern achievements, still finds himself in awe of forces that are far beyond him and his greatest achievements, technologically speaking. Fleets of our greatest ships are docked uh, at port, lest they be tossed about like toys and sunk. NASA's greatest rocket recently, the SLS, the Space Launch System, you remember was recently grounded for a very long time because of the power of nature. Uh, NASA itself says that one hurricane, for instance, expends over its lifetime more than the power of 10,000 nuclear weapons. That's the astonishing power that is found in nature, and that's why man says the power of Mother Nature must be respected. And yet here in our psalm, we do find nature and its power personified. And what does it do? It's astonishing. It retreats. It finds itself in retreat, the one thing that it never does on the earth before man. And why does it retreat? 
It retreats before the presence and power of God. The very things that make man quake and tremble, storms and seas and mountains, are nothing. They just skip away from the presence of Almighty God. The forces that intimidate the greatest of our men tremble before the presence of God. And this really, at the end of the day, what it does is it reveals the perverseness of man's heart that dares to personify and call nature our mother and to respect our so-called mother nature, but never look beyond nature to the God of heaven who hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet and say this, that we must respect God, that we must respect his power, the God who is enthroned above nature and who is in command of nature. They never say we must respect God lest we be judged for our sin and perish in the way. The sickness of man's heart is to adore and be in awe of nature and not the holy God who superintends nature is above nature and is the creator and governor of nature itself. But our psalm, it really could end, right, as a declaration of God's power over the creation. Uh, That the things that we tremble in, that sailors tremble in at the seas, it'd be enough to just say, look how powerful God is. Do you see how incredibly powerful the true God is? And it could just be a declaration of his power, and that would be glorious in itself. But we find in the psalm for the church a declaration of the ends for which he exercises his power. The judgment of the church's enemies and especially the salvation of God's people. All those who exercise faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. You know, the psalm, when it is sung by faith and the understanding, it brings vividly to life Peter's words that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. 1 Peter 1.5 This is a, a vivid and memorable demonstration, not just uh, metaphoric, but literal, as we'll find in the Exodus. But for us today, we are to take heart that the power of God is, is for his people to save us from whatever foes they are, that the mightiest powers in the creation, the mightiest uh, powers of the world are nothing compared to the power of God who is for his people. Not even, right, where we're going with Psalm 114, not even the mightiest nation on the earth could stand before the God of heaven who caused not only uh, the throne of Egypt to be overthrown, but the natural powers that stood between his people going to the promised land, right? And so with that to sort of whet our appetite for the theme, our theme is Christ's power exercised for our salvation. Christ's power exercised for our salvation. And we'll divide our time into the three heads on your bulletin. The first is Exodus and separation. Well, for some review, 
as uh, Psalm 113 was last month, and it's been a little over a month since we've considered uh, our Psalm of the Month. Uh, Psalms 113 to 118, as you know now, are called the Egyptian Hallel. They were sung to celebrate the exodus out of Egypt. The first verse of our psalm is where they get their name, when Israel went out of Egypt. And so these, these uh, psalms, 113 to 118, they get their name from this psalm itself. And as such, they were sung at the Passover meal uh, because they celebrated the exodus out of Egypt. And most fittingly for us, Christians, Jesus and his disciples sang them at the Last Supper as well, which is why the church often sings them during communion uh, seasons. Well, also to sing with understanding, we must understand that this Exodus motif is woven throughout the New Testament as pointing to Christ. As these are psalms concerning the Exodus, how do we sing them as new songs in Christ? Well, if you don't understand that the Exodus itself is woven all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the New Testament, you won't understand how to sing these as new songs. But in God's providence, you remember recently in Luke chapter 9, we were at the Mount of Transfiguration. And you saw that the Exodus, Moses himself agreed to this, Uh, pointed to the greater exodus that Jesus would accomplish and would accomplish by his death on the cross. You remember that when he went to accomplish his decease, the word in the Greek language there is exodus. But it is not just at the transfiguration. It is everywhere from the very beginning of the gospel narrative. Consider our first verse again. When Israel went out of Egypt. Now, don't you remember that very famous verse We covered Hosea a long time ago in Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt, I called my son, right? And how is that text used by Matthew 2.15? That's fulfilled by Christ when his family returns to Egypt after Herod dies. And so the Exodus itself is all about, it's all about the son of God. God's eternal son come in flesh, called out of Egypt to free us from our bondage to sin. And you have to ask the question, right, uh, boys and girls, you know, the Exodus is often probably one of the most favorite of uh, Bible narratives for young people because it grips us, right? And it's meant to grip us because it reveals the greater and greatest salvation of all, right? In, in, a, in a way that the church under age could understand tangibly when they see mighty waters, Uh, Depart when they see a man who is essentially almost Satan incarnate tossed aside by God so that he may bring his people to heavenly glory typified by Canaan. These are the things by the hand of a redeemer, Moses. These are the things that typified the greater salvation that was to come in such a memorable way, plaguing the enemies of God so that he would let his people go. And when you sing these psalms, 113 to 118, these precious Hallel psalms, you need to keep the exodus in mind such that when it ends with, and not just the exodus, you must keep the gospel in mind such that when they end with Psalm 118 with these solemn words, bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. You know exactly who they're speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with anything Moses did, but it has to do with what Jesus would do. 
And you know exactly who you are singing of and why the very last word from these Hallel Psalms is, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. So with these as the principles by which we interpret these Psalms, let's turn to verse 1. And we are reminded that the house of Jacob, that is Israel, came out of Egypt. And this immediately tells us something about the nature of our salvation. As you consider these two powers, Jacob and Egypt. And the first question you have to ask is, what was Jacob's house compared to the power of Egypt? It was absolutely nothing. Jacob was no great nation compared to Egypt. And that's the point of this calling out here, is that Jacob could never in any ways come out of Egypt if they were left to themselves. They were under severe bondage. They couldn't even make uh, bricks anymore. They were told to make it without straw. They were being crushed under the most powerful man in the world. And yet, God's people did come out of Egypt. And this is what sets the psalm up for us. What can account for this feat? Their power? Their ingenuity? No. A military strategy? No. It was only the mighty power of God. And beloved, again, this is, has to be a survey of the psalm. We can't do a deep dive. But here's the point, just to cut to the chase, so to speak, is your salvation is entirely of Christ's power. And that's what this psalm teaches us to sing. That if we have come out of the estate of sin and misery, it is 100% totally and entirely by the hand of Christ. It's not your power, mine either, to withstand sin, the world, or the devil that will save you. But no, you must praise God that, as in the Exodus, the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness. And when it comes to the church as a whole, not just our individual salvation, you must sing with this understanding too. You know, we often despair at times over how small and how insignificant true churches of God are. And I don't mean Reformed Presbyterian churches. I mean those who will get up and they will just preach plainly what the Bible has to say and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So few, so few in our time and so insignificant. And the world seems to be gaining in power and seems bent, hell-bent on crushing true orthodox and gospel-preaching churches who believe that this is the very word of God. But when we take up the psalm, in view of all that, we remember again Jacob's house, nothing compared to Egypt, and yet God led them out. And Christ himself, who says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church, will go forth conquering and to conquer, not because you and I are mighty and strong, Far from it. Uh, Here's a man who's just simply got his Bible preaching to you. And this is how uh, the world is transformed. This is the stuff that the Bible calls is foolishness to the world. And it is considered foolishness to the world because Christ will get the glory. It'll all be of his power and of his arm and of his strength. We are insignificant. And so he will gain the glory as he did over Pharaoh. And so this first verse tells us of the beginning of Jacob's salvation out of Egypt for us. And for us then, 
this would be the equivalent of our conversion, right? Uh, when you look at the Exodus narrative, coming out of Egypt is almost like, for our individual salvation, our conversion, because we have not yet arrived at, you'll see a bit later, Canaan being the, the type of heaven, right? Uh, we'll find here that the banks of the River Jordan are here, uh, which we'll consider in due time, but we're not at the River Jordan yet, uh, in our salvation when we are first converted. Neither are we today uh, if we are here and converted. Uh, that'll come later. But as the beginning of our salvation is in view here, let's consider the second part of the first verse. The house of Jacob, meaning came forth uh, or came out of a people of strange language. Now, there's a doctrine tucked neatly here, which is the doctrine of separation. And it's far too often ignored today. This is not a popular idea anymore when Christians want to be both in the world, which we have to be, but they want to be partly of the world as well. But Jacob's salvation and ours too includes a separation from a people of a strange language. Well, what does that mean? Well, it'd be too little if all the text means to communicate is that the language of the Egyptians was not the Hebrew language. Uh, that's a given, and I think all of us understand that. Now, this is a, an idiom that you are to understand, that the speech of the unbeliever is very different from the speech of the believer. Uh, I think you know that any time you've been around unbelievers, right, or immersed with them. Uh, the Christian tongue, com compared to the unbeliever, the Christian tongue is bound to let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now, compared to that, the speech and conduct of the unbeliever is a very strange tongue. And you think about why that is. Where does the tongue get its speech? From the heart. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaketh. And it is said, and it used to be said more, I think we ought to reclaim it, that the Christian speaks the language of Zion. Uh, biblical truth, lofty thoughts of Christ fill their mouth. Uh, they're constantly saying, praise the Lord for this or that or everything. They're constantly saying, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such. Prayer is quick upon their lips. Instead of luck, they speak of providence. Uh, the words of reconciliation are swift upon their tongue. They speak of repenting of their sin rather than their pride being unyielding. Um, they speak of trust and hope in a security found in Christ constantly, even in the hardest of circumstances. Uh, they don't let unclean things pass before their eyes, uh, nor will they speak of unclean things either. They quote and speak the scripture. It flows out of their mouths readily. Whereas those in the world, in comparison with their base thoughts, they have a strange language to us. A language that is filled, if you think of their heart right then, with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life from 1 John 2.16. But that language in our conversion becomes a strange language. And the Christian is called to a separation from such. Uh, that doctrine of separation, vividly portrayed in the Exodus, but also 
uh, is found in the New Testament, lest you think that this is an Old Testament thing. It's not. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Second Corinthians 6 teaches this doctrine in the New Testament where you are told not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? And sometimes we think, well, that just means I can't be married, which certainly it's not, it is not any less than that, but it's more than that. That means in all of your relationships of life, you are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? Uh, that goes for worldly friendships. That goes with, if you're going to enter into, say, a business partnership, it would be a very unwise thing to do that. This is different from being having an employer who's an unbeliever. This is you yourself deciding to start a business enterprise. That would be incredibly against the doctrine of separation. Um, 2 Corinthians 6 actually recalls the Exodus as well. And I want you to listen to how the apostle frames the Exodus for the Christian. 2 Corinthians 6.16, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Now, this is the same, right? This is the same thing, uh, the same Bible that tells New Testament believers that you are not to be out, out of the world, right? You live in the world. At the same time, it says, be ye separate. And the reason for that is that we are separated unto God to be a holy people. We may dwell here, right, in this world as what though? A pilgrim, not a citizen. Our citizenship is where, boys and girls? It is in heaven, right? We are sojourning, making our way to the River Jordan, so to speak. We are making our way to the promised land, to heavenly Canaan. And along the way, we are called to come out of the world and be separate. And the reason for this, given in the Exodus and in the New Testament, is that we are separated, not just out of the world, but separated unto God to be a holy people. Because God dwells in our midst now, same as it was in the Exodus. 2 Corinthians 6.15, right before he said, be ye separate, the reason is given. I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. You are, yes, to interface with the unbelieving world, right? You cannot help it. But you are first and foremost to have your communion with God and God's people. Uh, everybody else to your heart and mind should have a strange language. Um, when I was uh, recently just in, 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 in Glasgow, Right, even among people who ostensibly speak the same language, English, uh, it can almost feel like being among those of a strange language. Right? Um, how much worse it is. Right? Maybe you don't know French, and and you're in the midst of people who are speaking French all the day long. You would feel terribly uncomfortable. Right? Uh, you even think about this. They start laughing about things, and you don't know. Are they mocking me? I'm an American, after all. Uh, you, you, you ask about these things, right? It's a strange, it's an uncomfortable thing, right? And that's how we ought to feel about the unbeliever. We're in the midst of a people who don't speak the language of Zion. Now, that could be a whole sermon in itself, but here is the key principle. Salvation includes separation. We are not to dwell and choose to dwell in the tents of wickedness, which lead, neatly leads to the second verse. Judah was his sanctuary, and Israel his dominion. Now, the word sanctuary in the Hebrew language uh, does not mean like a, a, a place, like a sanctuary like that. It means holy. Uh, Judah, in other words, was holy to the Lord. 
They are a separated people, which is what holy means. Now, you might ask, why is Judah only mentioned what happened to the other 11 tribes? It does not mean that the rest of Israel was not holy to the Lord. No, Judah stands for all of Israel, as Judah was the head of all the tribes of Israel. And again, I don't have a lot of time this morning, but let me just get to the point, which is you must see Christ in that, right? He is the head of the tribe of Judah. And as he is holy then, and he is the head of He is the head of his body, the church, and his church is holy to him, united to him, the head. And so united to Christ, the believer is severed from communion with the world that they would have communion with Christ. Now, this verse then calls Israel God's dominion. In what sense is that? For the whole earth is Christ's dominion, is it not? Which it is, but in a special way. Christ rules and reigns in our midst for us, the church. For the church is the kingdom of God on earth. And this is the place where the rule of Christ is, and here's the key principle, acknowledged. Right? He is king over these United States. Indisputable. However, you won't find a nary of a call out to Christ in our government's documents. He's not acknowledged that way. But the kingdom of God is the visible church where the rule of Christ is acknowledged, where Christ has given special officers, laws, and censures by which he governs her, and he superintends his church in a special and careful way. And you remember, this is the place where his people are made willing to follow him, right? And that's why in a special way the church is his dominion, because his spirit dwells in them. There are people who will not listen to the strange language of the pagans, but instead, as Jesus said, according to his kingly office and his prophetic office, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Right? The hearing is his prophetic voice, but the following has to do with the fact that we acknowledge him as our king and we follow him. And so Israel is his dominion. And I'll speak more on that a bit later, but for time's sake, we'll have to move on. Uh, What the rest of the psalm shows us is how his power then over all things, his kingdom of power, he is enthroned as king and head over all things, right? Uh, Ephesians 1.22, and hath put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be the head of all things uh, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So Christ exercises what is called the kingdom of power, for the sake of the kingdom of God, which is the church. What the rest of the psalm shows us is how his power over all things is exercised for the judgment of Christ's enemies and for the salvation of his people. And so let's turn then to our second heading, which is judgment and salvation. Our third verse says, The sea saw it and fled. Jordan was driven back. Now the sea in this first part of the verse is the Red Sea. And what is in view is the crossing of it. Now, I don't quite understand the reasoning here, but the translators of the authorized version insert the word it, the sea saw it. It's italicized in your copy of the scriptures so that you know it's not original to the Hebrew language, the Hebrew text. But the inference is not that the Red Sea saw an it, but the sea saw him. The sea saw the Lord of glory, Jehovah, and his awesome presence and fled away from the power of God. Uh, But 
as you recall that in the Exodus, I think the way that the Bible, I don't just think, I know, because this is how the Bible treats itself, in all such references to such events, you are to recall to mind the entirety of the narrative. So if you would turn, and this is, I will read it anyway, if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 14, I think it's very helpful to hear what exactly transpired here when the sea fled, because it's not just the sea that is in view, of course. I'm going to start reading in verse 21, Exodus 40, 14, 21. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. So here's the sea, and here's the agent. And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that they drave them heavily so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand over the sea that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. So before the presence of the mighty sea, uh, before the presence of the Lord, rather, the mighty sea fled, but do you understand the reason why? Was it the Lord just there to kind of show off his power? Look at what I can do. By no means. The Lord was fighting for his people against a power that was far too mighty for them. He exercised his almighty power to save them from a foe far too great for them. Such that in Psalm 114, you're not so much thinking about seas and mountains, right? The Lord brings those to mind because these are the greatest powers on the earth. But really what is under it all is the fact that every other power that stands against God's people, whether they are named Pharaoh or President or Premier, all powers as great as they are cannot stand before God so that we may gain glory. That is, we may get to heaven that we may be redeemed. The church must take to heart the words of Exodus 14 when we sing this psalm, that the enemies of God will say, let us flee from the face of the church, for the Lord fighteth for them. And that is what is at the heart of this great psalm, that the church's hope is that the Lord omnipotent not only reigns, but fights for his people that he will build his church, that the gates of hell shall not prevail, not because of the power of the church's ministers or of its congregants, the size of its buildings, the amount of money that it may have. Whatever stands before God's people to get to himself, which is really what it means to get to heaven, he will take care of. 
It doesn't matter how many nukes a nation that threatens the, the bride of Christ has, insignificant compared to the power of God. The Lord who sends hurricanes with the power of 10,000 nukes can quiet the greatest of storms as you saw on the boat with the word of his power. And that power is exercised for his people. He fights for us. Now there's a second event in the Psalms third verse. Jordan was driven back. Now you would find that in Joshua 3 when the Jordan retreated so the people of God could enter Canaan, the good land, the land of promise. Joshua 3.17, all the Israelites, isn't that interesting? All the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. All the people safely enter into Canaan, the good land of promise. And you think about this then. They were plucked out of what was typological of hell, out of Egypt, a land signifying the misery of bondage to sin and Satan, and brought to Canaan, the land overflowing with milk and honey. All of them, right? A land typological of heaven itself. Now, if you speak the language of Zion, or you know those who who do, at death, you might well have heard some say, oh, I am soon to be delivered to Canaan's shores. Right? What are they meaning? They're saying they're taking this imagery of crossing the River Jordan to be safely delivered to heaven. But there's something quite wonderful about these two events treated in the same verse, isn't there? Let me read it again. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan was driven back. You know, this is the beginning of our father's salvation out of Egypt. The seas saw it and fled. And the fulfillment of God's promise to them to enter Canaan, Jordan was driven back. And they're pushed together almost as though they are one singular event. As if no time at all has passed between these events. And you know, boys and girls, if you know your history, at least 40 years had passed, right? There was the wilderness journey in between. And to us, that seems like a long time. I'm only in my 45th year, and that seems like I've lived a lifetime. That's a long time, four decades, to us. But from God's perspective, it's almost like a singular event with no time having passed at all. That is how we sing and anticipate our, uh, our entrance into glory and our final salvation. And that's even how we will perceive it ourselves in glory. Almost as one single event from the time of our conversion to our passing to glory. Our life is but a vapor. And it's same as well for the church and her glories to come. From the crucifixion to the millennial glory and then into uh, the blessed return of Christ, it will seem as though no time has passed at all. And so what we do is we sing in this psalm with anticipation that the good work that God has begun in us, he will certainly bring to completion. And it reminds us of 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord, what was the use of that? So that you might think, well, I guess God doesn't keep time the way we do, because of course he's above time. No, the use of that is this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What he has promised not only is in his power to fulfill, but he surely will. And he's not slack in, uh, in keeping his promise, as some men count slackness, 
But here's the thing. It's needful for us, isn't it? But is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, it takes faith to believe that the promise that you will be into glory, into heaven, believer, is not uh, a long and arduous promise that is going to take far more time than you can bear. From God's point of view, he is not slack. And you will admit that your time of tears as pilgrims was very light and momentary. And you know what is not found in that verse, right, with these two events, is the wilderness journey. It's not even mentioned there. And you think on that in your own life then, right? All of the sins, all of the stumbling, all of the falling down on your face, right? And in sin and doing what was not right in God's eyes, but also the grace of repentance that comes to you in all those things. And you think on this, in that one precious verse, you see the truth and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more, right? And you look at this, uh, this precious psalm, and there is no remembrance of any of the sins of God's people, but simply that from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. But the next event that the psalm hearkens back to is Mount Sinai, verse 4. The mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs. And the imagery here is quite stunning. You know, mighty mountains, they flee at the presence of Jehovah. Mountains that we consider immovable, right? Who can move a mountain? beyond our power to budge. What do they do? They flee from God's majesty when he comes down with power. Consider Exodus 19.18. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. This is the power of God that causes the greatest mountains to quake and almost melt but what again is communicated by the mountain quaking? If earlier communication of the sea was about Pharaoh being unable to stand before God's power, what was at Mount Sinai? It was the law of God, wasn't it? And that's what's being communicated here by this psalm and this verse. That if the mountain would quake and flee from God's presence, what of sinners? What of sinners like you and me? Could we ever stand on our own before the Lord of hosts, when he says, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And we quake at the sight and sound of God as we recognize that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. What hope if a mountain will tremble does any mere man have to stand? The psalm asks these rhetorical questions as if in jest before the, the forces of this earth. Verses 5 and 6, What ailed thee? It's almost mocking. What ailed thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest, thou Jordan, that thou wast driven back, ye mountains that ye skipped like rams, and ye little hills like lambs? In other words, why did you all run away? What's the answer in verse 7? Tremble, thou earth, at the presence of the Lord. And again, is this psalm all about us singing to the mountains and seas? No. It is for men everywhere to take note of concerning their own rebellion against God and His laws. Concerning their sinfulness, concerning their iniquities. That's why Sinai is called as a witness in this psalm. 
We think of the question in Psalm 130, verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, who then should stand or shall stand? Right, that's the question here. If mountains tremble before the presence of the Lord, what will a mere sinner do? And the Lord will most certainly mark our iniquities, friends. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. Even the sins of the heart, no other men or women here know or can perceive. God knows. He told Samuel, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. And now I think the problem with most of us is we think, great, grand, God is going to see how good I am. (laughs) Far be it, friends. What he's going to see is your sin. He's going to see your iniquity and mine too. It's a frightening proposition if you really understood your heart to let God look on the heart, which he does anyway. Will he not find lust in your heart, which is repugnant to him? Will he not find blasphemous and sinful thoughts of himself, right? A complete neglect, as we prayed, of hallowing his name. Hatred towards men who are made in his image. Presumptuous and lying thoughts. Ways that we try to scheme and get ourselves out of situations we have created for ourselves by compounding sin over sin. Covetousness, to, not, uh, to have what is not ours. Envy and strife. No regard to glorify the God of heaven and worship him. And I can keep going on and on until my appointed time is over in this. What you need to read is the scripture in Romans 2, 5, and 6. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. You know, at the end of the day, the judgment on Pharaoh, so vivid and so memorable, even to our children, first teaches us that we are all as Pharaoh, that we are all treasuring up wrath with God because of our sin against God. Friends, it is a step too far, a step far too far for yourself to take the Exodus first as teaching on your salvation. No, it first teaches of damnation, which is why even those households who were of Hebrew descent without the blood of the lamb on the doorposts would find death in the house. The Exodus first teaches of damnation. And this is the thing, boys and girls, don't be deceived. Popular movies about the Exodus will never teach you that. Completely missed is that by nature, We have the very same standing before God as Pharaoh. And you have to ask then, if Pharaoh and his army, if Mount Sinai, uh, if the sea could not stand the wrath of God, who could stand it? Seas flee, mountains skip away. You know, the sea never fled from Pharaoh, but it fled from Jehovah. And it really is the epitome of the folly of the darkened mind of unbelief that believes at death, right? And you read this kind of thing, and maybe you've even heard it. Maybe if you've been converted, you've said it before your conversion. It's really the folly of the darkened mind that imagines <laughs> that they're going to die, and they're going to come before the Lord God of hosts and start a dispute with him. Why didn't you show me this? Why didn't you do this? Why do you allow evil to suffer? Um, 
Friends, the same men who quiver in a storm shelter when a tornado arises think they will come into the presence of God Almighty and tell him what is what. That's preposterous. They will be so filled with awe and horror over their own sinfulness that they will quiver before God before he dispatches them justly to an eternity of hell for their iniquities. Again, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, who, O Lord, shall stand? That's a sobering thing for all of us, including myself. And yet, at the same time, the very next verse in Psalm 130, its fourth verse says, but there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Right? How can that be possible with such fierce wrath from God against our iniquities? It's only possible, and this is where the gospel is so sweet, right? It's only possible through the one being that could possibly withstand the wrath of God in our place, right? It's teaching something of our salvation and the necessity that our Savior be both God and man, that the God-man Jesus would be judged in the place of sinners on his awful cross. And you think of our Savior, right, who knew this psalm so well, not only was he the one to inspire it, but he also sang it as a man with full understanding at that last Lord's Supper, didn't he? Uh, At that first Lord's Supper, the last Passover. And in Gethsemane, you must think that he must have meditated on these verses, And he must not have been thinking of mountains and seas when it came to the power of God that would soon be exercised against him, a power that would cause the mountains to melt. He thinks instead of this power exercised against himself. And so you read in Luke 22, 44, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He knows what is ahead of him, which is this almighty power of God to be uh, against him. Great agony as he thinks on the power that he full well knows would be arrayed against him. And he knew why he would suffer, right? Why he would suffer that he wasn't an unwitting uh, victim, as liberals would say. But before he sweated those great drops of blood, we read, for I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me, and he was reckoned among the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. Luke twenty two thirty seven. Right? He knows that he must become as a transgressor in the place of transgressor. And he knows what that means. It means that he must take the penalty of transgressors. He must be hoisted on that cross, not just to be paraded, in front of all men as the world's greatest sinner, but to be counted as such by God Almighty that would blast him with his almighty power that would cause mountains to melt, the Savior must take in his own heart and soul. Why? So that all of that anger, all of that wrath would not just be removed from you, but that anger and wrath, that frown from God would become a face of shining blessing upon his people. This is what is meant by propitiation, after all, a turning away of God's wrath so that God's face is kind towards us. And we also praise Christ in this psalm as we think on the deep things of God. 
that though mountains and seas would flee from the power and presence of the Lord's wrath, there's only one who never did flee from it, Jesus Christ, right? In Luke 9, we read not long ago, knowing all of this was before him, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then you think of what the Savior is going to face at the cross, and you think on all of this power that is arrayed against him, right? You must see the heart of the Savior for you, believer, right? There is only one that ever went out to meet the wrath of God. And he didn't do it as a kind of challenge, as you might find on social media, right? Who can do this and abuse themselves for it? No, he did it for you, the believer, He did it for you, his sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. John 10, 11. He knew no one else could atone uh, and withstand the blast of God's wrath that is due for you, believer, his sheep. The Father knew it as well, lest we think that this is all one-sided in the Godhead, right? The Father knew it as well, and he sends his Son to you out of love so that he... And you think of this, you think of the operation of the Trinity and all of this, right? The one that the Father loves and has eternally been in his bosom, he is willing to array all of his vengeance against all of the power that causes mountains to quake and tremble and cease to flee for your sake. You know, uh, I had to wrestle with my own heart here, but... Why is it these things don't move us anymore? Right? When you think on who God is and who he is to us, the believer, what Jesus Christ has done for us to take the horror unimaginable, and we will never grasp it for all of eternity, of what he endured on that cross. But all of that was exercised out of love, setting your face steadfastly to go and take the blast of God Just the very thought of it, knowing what it was causing the Savior to bleed. It's incredible. But it's also, as I have said earlier, shows us only one could save us. One who is God, man. One who would suffer in our place as man. But then to bear up the human nature under the wrath of God, he must be God. Because the only being, boys and girls, that can withstand the outpouring of God's fury in its fullness is God himself. Not mountains, not Pharaoh, not you, not me, only Jesus Christ. And believer, again, we shouldn't go too quickly here. He did it for you so that when you reach Canaan's heavenly shores or heavenly Canaan's shores, you will not tremble in fear before God on that day like the unbeliever who thinks he's going to shake his fist and pound his fist at God. But instead, you will find with Christ your mediator there, He will shine his blessed face upon you and he will say to you, enter into the joy of the Lord. All of these things were done so that you can cross, as it were, as in through dry land with a safe passage towards heaven. And if there will be trembling for you, it will be according to Jeremiah 33, 9. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them, meaning the church. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity I procure unto it. You see, to grasp these things by faith, believer, is to fear 
and tremble at all the goodness of God to you, a sinner. You know, there is a kind of trembling and fear that comes when we consider that Jesus went to bear the wrath of God willingly in my place, that God did not spare his own son for us, but delivered him up for us all. I mean, this is a matter of such solemn awe and wonder that we must tremble at the goodness of God in it, right? How little faith we have, friends. How little we believe and marvel at the gospel that the angels said were glad tidings of great joy. How little we understand the goodness of God in Christ that we will not tremble at his mercy. But friends, if you have not received the Lord Jesus yourself for your salvation, from God's wrath, uh, all I can do, and it is a mighty thing, I suppose, as God himself is the one doing the pleading, you are to take him today. You are to have his sufferings be counted as your sufferings. And the thing is, right, our Savior, who took God's wrath for his people, is now judge over all. This will be a different sermon, but he is now exalted as judge over all the things. And if you do not flee to him for refuge, rightfully so, you think on this, right? And there is such divine justice in this thought that he who took the wrath of God will deliver the same wrath to God's enemies who refuse to submit to him. Revelation 6, 16 through 17. And said to the mountains and rocks, these are the unbelievers, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. Who is that? Jesus, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Thing is, friends, as you see mountains flee and seas flee, uh, mountains and rock cannot save you from the wrath of the Lamb. The mountains will flee away from his wrath, and the Lamb, he will have you in his grasp and his grip. And so what you must do, if you have not yet received Christ, is to repent of your sin. Call on the name of the Lord, and thou shalt be saved from the wrath of the Lamb. And that is Christ's own promise out of his word. And you will know that he has taken away all the wrath of God for your sin, and that your name is in the book of life if you call upon his name, and then endeavor to walk as one separated from out of the world unto salvation. And for you who receive Christ, his power is now for you instead of against you. Consider the entirety of verse 7. Tremble thou earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. This psalm is meant to cheer you, Christian, when you read that the earth is to tremble before the God of Jacob, meaning the God of his people. Right? He is so identified with his people. In fact, we're called Christians. We're identified with Christ. We are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Ghost, and so on. But that means he is the God who is for his people. And so when we sing, tremble thou earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, we are singing to the world, tremble before the God who is for his people, demonstrated even in the death of the Son of God for the sake of his people. And I'm going to have to get back to this maybe another time, but uh, time is far gone. Let me just say this then. As you sing Psalm 114, you truly then grab a hold of Romans chapter 8, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is that? Because even the mightiest powers on the earth cannot separate us from the mightiest power that is exercised in love for his people so that we are never separated from the love of Christ. He will deal, beloved, with whatever stands between you and himself. Your salvation is assured because it is all of him and not of you. In this psalm, there are zero mentions of Moses' exploits or Joshua's either. There are zero mentions of the swords of God's people, and especially as we've already thought about it, zero mentions of the sins of God's people too. And maybe that is why those 40 years are glossed over in a single verse, because at the end of the day, we will say salvation is of the Lord. And I will just use this as a conclusion, which is verse 8. Uh, teaches us provision and perseverance, which turned the rock into a standing water, the flint into a fountain of waters. Now, what this references is in Exodus 17, how the Lord provided water for his people in the wilderness, right? And what we are taught here in this concluding verse is that the same power that is exercised to smash mountains, to destroy them, and Pharaoh, and armies, and all the kings of the earth, is also power that is for our provision on our way to heavenly Canaan. He will provide the food we need, spiritual and physical, to get home to himself. And you are never to doubt it. And this is why even our perseverance is not left to ourselves. In every way, the Lord will have us go to heaven. In fact, what is the sinful thought? We've thought about this in our Psalm of the Month earlier. Uh, Psalm 95, can God provide, right? Can he provide a table in the wilderness? That's the sinful thought in our fallen flesh. When you saw that plague the people in the Exodus itself. And whenever you are filled with anxiety, whether over material provision or spiritual provision, by faith you must hold fervently onto the truth that God can provide and will provide whatever you need to get it to heaven. And having not spared his own son for us, what is the question? How will he not give us all that we need? Right? And this is what this psalm is so neatly tucking together here at the end. And the big problem we have about perseverance is that we think that he has left it all up to ourselves. But it is God who causes you to persevere. And this is why, again, we come back to that saying of McShane all the time. But for every one look into your heart, look, have ten looks to Christ. Right? It's up to him. It's not up to you. And it's not up to me. Uh, Salvation is of the Lord. In your pilgrimage to Canaan's heavenly shore, there is one constant believer. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end. Right? It is Christ in you and with you that will take you to heaven. Even in this Psalm's final verse, so many of even our children are probably thinking about 1 Corinthians 10.4, which teaches us this was Christ with them. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. 
And that rock was Christ. Goodness and mercy following them all the days of their life, even when they grumbled. There was goodness and mercy ensuring that they would make it so that all of them would make it to Canaan. So, do you think that Christ, having saved you and separated you from the world, now leaves you all to yourself to make it somehow? I don't know how you imagine, or I do too, that we are going to make it to heaven on our own. Do you think that having begun a work in you by the Spirit, you are now perfected by the flesh? No. You foolish Galatians, the apostle said. We would be fools to think that he is not going to be with us to strengthen us and nourish us and cause us to persevere. And he will do it in the most unlikely places, in the most challenging trials and the hardest providences until each one of us who believe make it to Canaan's heavenly shore and the shore of heaven. And I think that is a fitting word with our time to end our meditation with. So let us arise for prayer, if able.